Hello, everyone. Welcome to the One Link Podcast. I am Brad, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, James. How are you doing, James? I'm fabulous. How are you? Good. I'm loving the vibe you have with the... Our audience can't see this, but you got this lovely map behind you. You, you look really official now. Yeah. You said I, I upgraded from just working out of my home to an Oklahoma City satellite office. I know. It's, but, it's uh, looking good. Looking really good. I miss seeing the tools in the background, but it's <laughs> this is good too. So anyways, That's good right. to be it's, with you as always. Yes. Yes. Well, we have a very special guest with us here today our associate training director and our main go-to focused on trainer here in the one link office ashley welcome to the show ashley hey thank you glad to be here well we're going to be continuing on in our buddhism series here and so uh james why don't you give us a little intro of what we're heading into today Gotcha. So we've we've talked with several people that worked with Buddhism, but um, as Ashley really is the the leader on this, we've been working on increasing some of our some of the things that we have for students in their prep work before they come, and then also just training volunteers better. We've been getting more stuff cataloged or or in a more accessible format about kind of the three major religions that we deal with. And as Ashley was putting together this stuff on Buddhism. Uh, it kind of ran into this. Actually, it was a, a little small crisis in my own heart as I realized, like, I don't know some of this stuff. And part of it is because my people, even though they were Buddhists, they they didn't really talk about a lot of these things. So today we wanted to just talk through as close as we can to like what is what is official Buddhist belief. And we've said this before, there are multiple types of Buddhism. It's not like a monolithic, all of them think the same thing and and you'll look, catch that from our interviews with our people but today we'll try to try to line out what the official one is do remember if you remember what uh, jack talked about that a lot of times buddhism wraps over the top of something and so one of the real key questions that you need to ask when working with buddhism buddhists is what is this what is buddhism wrapping over the top of what is the underlying belief um that it's kind of creating a facade for or a uh, framework for. I really liked the way Jack described it when he said said it's a cloak that wraps around many beliefs. And so, you know, you got Tibetan Buddhism, which is different than, I guess it's wrapped over a religion called Bon, and that's different than Mongols' version of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and it adds their traditional religion into that. And that's different than what a Northern Chinese person that lived in the same area might uh, practice Buddhism, which is different than Thailand and Cambodia and Japan and on and on and on. But today, as best we can, this is at least stuff that I think they would generally all agree on, especially if you talk to like a monk or somebody that was more uh, specifically in the study of that. Yeah, well, let's so let's just jump right in. Obviously, if we're talking about Buddhism, then this is, you know, we're talking about the teachings of Buddha, or we need to maybe understand a little bit about the historical figure of Buddha. So Ashley, maybe you could just, from your research and training volunteers, what what have you sort of learned about the, the history involved in Buddha, his life and uh, whatnot? Yeah, so there's a lot out there about Buddha um, and his story. Um, Buddha, or Siddhartha Gautama, um, he lived like so many years ago, about five 560 BC to 480 BC. Um, and he was the son of an Indian warrior king. Um, 
He lived this super extravagant life. Um, he had people serving him. He lived this very lush lifestyle. But as he grew older, he kind of grew really bored of like those indulgences and all of that um, fancy, you know, stuff that that he had. And he just kind of had this crisis. Um, and he decided to go and search for what the meaning of life really is. Um, so he spent a lot of time um, just out wandering. And eventually he ended up um, under this tree um, and had an encounter with a couple of different people, an old man, an ill man, um, a corpse, and an aesthetic. Um, and so he was convinced then after these encounters that the world is just full of suffering. Um, and suffering is just innately a part of living. Um, so he was kind of distraught with all of that. So he then decided to renounce being a prince. Um, he became a monk and decided that he was going to deprive himself of all of his worldly possessions um, to hopefully find what the truth meant. And so he ended up meditating under this tree and decided that um, to be free from suffering, um, you ultimately have to achieve salvation. And so that that salvation was this enlightenment is a very familiar word um, that Buddhists use, enlightenment or nirvana. Um, and so the way to end this suffering and this cycle of suffering was then to become an enlightened one and to reach nirvana. So then he spent the remainder of his days basically just becoming like as enlightened as he possibly can um, and trying to reach nirvana, um, which was the the end to all suffering. It's this this cycle of you're born, you suffer, um, you try and reach nirvana, you try and become enlightened um, to end that cycle of suffering. Um, but most people um, won't won't get there. They won't end that cycle of suffering. It's just this constant wheel that keeps on turning. So your purpose in life is to try and end that. So that's a little bit about who Buddha was, his background, um, and kind of what he discovered as he was meditating. But yeah, he spent his his whole life trying to trying to end that cycle. And it's probably worth noting here, and James, you can maybe speak to this, that probably your average Buddhist out there doesn't have a real comprehensive history of Buddha like this. They maybe know the practices and whatnot. So if you're going into a situation where you're ministering to Buddhists, kind of building off of this history, you may not have common ground to that, you know, that they'll know what you're talking about. Is that accurate? I think I think it is. I think they they might know who Buddha was himself. Uh, of course, like the way they tell his story, I think they would say maybe he is actually the first enlightened one. And of course, they believe in this this reincarnation. And so they would look at all of these things. You know, he renounced his titles. He he did all these things. And so they would they would have a lot of honor for him. But they may or may not know all his teachings. I think that's what I would I would say it's more accurate. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I think just hearing that, Ashley, your um, your summary of that, it's kind of like with a lot of things, we don't just need to make good observations, right? Because uh, his observations were correct. There is suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And his observation of just having all these, you know, luxurious lifestyle, whatever is not does not give me meaning, right? Those are both good observations. But the it's the conclusions, the solutions where we've really got to get it right. And uh, in this case, obviously, just getting rid of desire and becoming enlightened 
doesn't we we know from biblical worldview that that doesn't achieve salvation there's sort of some i think we're because we're creating the image of god we we tend to see things correctly but then there are also a little skewed so it, it's a uh, there's an interesting mm-hmm. mix of truth and uh misunderstanding in some of these things yeah, for sure. So actually, I know that Buddhism has four noble truths. These were kind of the things, his main main core teachings. What were some of those? Yeah, so the four noble truths, those all revolve around the idea of suffering, right? Um, and so he kind of breaks those down into four different key points. The first one being the truth of suffering, which is in this life, you will suffer. Nothing's going to truly satisfy. Suffering is everything. The second one being the truth of the cause of suffering. And so he believed that the cause of suffering was desire or greed or thirst or craving, kind of those sinful, selfish desires um, that he noticed. Third one was the truth of the end of suffering. So he believed that the cure to end suffering was to stop clinging and being attached to things and people that make you happy. Um, And then the fourth one was the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. So walking the eightfold path is the cure to reaching enlightenment and ending suffering. So he broke suffering down into four key points, Mm -hmm. um, which is, it's very interesting how he, you know, I think with that first and second one is there's some truth wrapped up in that, like what you were saying, Brad, of there is suffering in this life. Um, You know, we are of course, we know from the Bible, like we are sinful beings, we are selfish, you know, we have all of these desires. So he was able to kind of identify that. But it's how you end that, that is that different point for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really, it's like, I don't know if I can fully articulate it well, but it's kind of like, if I just won't want anything, then I will, if I just won't desire anything, uh, where for us, we say like, we, we still have, we need to have desires, but our desires need to be God. Like God will fulfill mm-hmm. our desires. God will satisfy us. Where for theirs, it's almost like, if I just, if I just won't want anything and yeah. And there's a little bit of truth to that because if some of the things that we get into is sin, if I just didn't want that, <laughs> like somehow convinced myself I didn't want it. Yeah. I wouldn't do that sin. But, and I think this is also true that they probably had a little different view of sin and like where we, where we know Jesus said, like, you know, if any man looks at a woman lustfully, it's the same as committing adultery. Um, I don't know that they would hold those thoughts quite the same way. And then the ultimately, like the way, the way you end suffering is, is kind of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like all about what you do. So what is this, what is this eightfold path? Yeah. So the eightfold path um, is really just eight things that he identified as really good things to do. Um, to reach enlightenment and to end that suffering. Um, so there's there's eight key points here, hence the Eightfold Path. Um, the first one is right understanding. So insight into the true nature of reality. The second one is right thought or intention. So the unselfish desire to realize enlightenment. Um, the third uh, p- part of the Eightfold Path would be right speech. So using speech compassionately, being kind in your words, Right action is the next one. So using ethical conduct to manifest, to sorry, to manifest compassion. Um, the fifth one being right livelihood, making a living through ethical and non-harmful means. Right effort, cultivating wholesome qualities and releasing unwholesome qualities. Right mindfulness, so whole body and mind awareness. They believe that everything is connected. 
and right concentration or meditation um, or concentrated practice. And so, you know, we would probably a lot of these, we would say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. Right. Right. Actions and right speech, these sort of things. What have you, as you researched, did you find, you know, some of these are a little bit open to interpretation, like using speech compassionately or having ethical conduct. Does, does it uh, flesh out exactly what that looks like? It does not, not from what I researched. I don't know if your experiences are any different there, James, but I think it's probably more a function there. There's probably like books and, and in fact, I remember a story. This is a, who wrote this? This was maybe from James Gilmore who worked with Mongols in the 1800s. He was talking about one of the objections they had at that time. They're like, they're like, all you have is this little, little book. I mean, we have like when this rich man ordered a copy of all the scriptures, it took like a camel caravan to carry it, you know? So they actually have like, thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and thoughts, but it is a little a little bit more hard to define narrowly. And I think de- depending on which form of Buddhism you're entering into, they would define those things differently. And wanting, you know, the true nature of reality, I think it's it's like under basically understanding it the way Buddha understood it. You know, that this is this is suffering and these are desires. And and I think it's it's just interesting on which things I'm gonna say, which things they latch onto at different points in times and which things they don't. So I'm trying to decide which ones we're going to get into later. Yeah, at the core, these are not bad. What they're lived out in practice, which ones count, which ones don't. And I feel like I know an older gentleman real well who is a Christian, grew up in a Christian house, but for a while he just like completely walked away from God. More or less his understanding was that if you die, like you could be saved, but if you died without a, with a sin that hadn't been confessed yet, you still went to hell. You know, and he just was like, he just kind of gave up. And I feel like that might be a little bit of uh, of what you you tend to do as a Buddhist. You know, you start, well, right thoughts or right livelihoods. And then some practicality comes in. I'm just going to do this. And well, maybe I'll, maybe, and, and I won't get it this life, but I can get a little better the next life. I don't have to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not close enough to perfection or to enlightenment. You know, that'll come later. That's my, that's my take on it. Help me, and James, you can you can kick this till further in the podcast here if I'm getting ahead of things. But help me understand meditation. This is for either of you if you want to jump in. You know, obviously that's one of the key when we we think about Buddhism, we think about this idea of meditating, and we maybe have this picture in of our mind of a monk kind of sitting in a a monastery or a temple meditating. What other than generally, it seems like from from what you shared earlier, Ashley, that this has to do with trying to become enlightened. What more can you help our audience and me, in fact, uh, understand about the purpose of meditation? So you, either one of you jump, can jump in. What you got, Ashley? So meditation, from my understanding of it, and I haven't done a whole lot of research into what specifically they're doing or saying or chanting, but it is a chant. It is a meditation or a mantra um, that they're saying over and over and over. And these are prayers that they are just reciting, usually to a piece of music or a note or some kind of melody that they've put together to just kind of help with that repetition of it um, and memorization of it. But it is, um, you know, just that idea of releasing control over all of those desires and and really just kind of entering that mindless state of I don't I don't even know what the word for it is 
but just I guess openness maybe and be like welcoming um, whatever it is that they're asking for to the, just kind of release all of those desires and all of those wants and and selfish ambitions and all of that. Kind of what I've gathered from just my my brief research of it. I think we know from uh, Kung Fu Panda that real meditation is. Um, I don't I don't know a lot about their meditation beliefs either, and I don't know how they would differ from a Hindu meditation. They would have some some degree of interlockingness. Buddhism kind of came out of Hinduism, so there's some there would definitely be some ties there. I think they do sometimes practice like a uh, I'm going to call it an empty mind meditation, like you're trying to like have zero thoughts in your mind, you know, like again, kind of stilling down into nothingness or into into this enlightened state where I neither want anything nor am I am able to con- I'm able to control my body and control my thoughts and but I real honest I'm I'm not super I don't know a ton about that I would guess that with some of the mantras that they chant that sometimes they don't know what they mean they just chant them like they're holy Buddhist scriptures and I know I've seen monks do that like if if people want to hire you know hire a monk to read some blessing to them they may or may not know what they're reading they're just reading it phonetically like i would read spanish or something now they also so he, oh, oh good james good no i was just gonna ask about this the five precepts here i'm seeing we've got eightfold path we've got five precepts so i was wanting to hear a little more about that actually i think you did a little research on that is that right yeah a little bit <laughs> not extensive but yeah the five precepts are almost like they're <sighs> rules for good living. If I had to break it down and kind of put it into, you know, a, a, a thing there, but um, the five precepts are um, one, refrain from taking a life. Um, they believe in, you know, the the sacredness of life and preserving life and they're going to uh, preserve more animals over others. And so they're going to practice that in the foods that they eat, um, how they treat the other person um, that they're interacting with, things like that. The second one is refrain from taking what is not given. Yeah. So hey, can I can I say something real quick on refrain yeah. from taking a life? Yeah. I think one of the interesting things here is I don't know that they actually differentiate any between like one life versus another life, like an insect versus a person, because in their form of a belief of reincarnation, you know, we're all just different beings, right? Mm-hmm. And so they do they do definitely consider the amount of lives. And so like a lot of them would prefer to eat a yak than a fish because you have to kill a lot more fish. You know, that one yak feeds a lot of people. And it doesn't seem to be a sin to eat the meat once it's been maybe in different forms. It probably is. Cause I know there's some, some vegetarianism in there, but it's better to kill, kill one yak, take that sin and feed a whole village than have to kill a hundred fish to do the same thing. But I think the more pious you are, the more you would try not to kill an insect. Like you would not want to kill anything. Practically speaking for my people, they didn't care anything that I could tell about killing any animal. It was kind of a non, it was a non-starter. Uh, they were a herding culture. And they, I actually remember they would have this sacrifice up on these high places. And, you know, the the Buddhist monks would be there chanting chants and they would have some sheep that they had slaughtered and uh, and put there. And so 
that's one of them that that I've definitely heard and seen, but I've all I, I think I know more about that one, but I've also seen it like completely not observed. I think it speaks to the diversity in in the Buddhist world because you know you have say for example uh, when I visited Tibet, I saw that basically how they dealt with this is that the Muslims that lived in in that area they were all the butchers, so they did all the killing. Now the Tibetans would eat the meat, but they made some, you know had someone else to kill it. That's probably another solution. I mean, I can remember in Thailand when it would rain and all those worms and things would kind of come out of the ground and be out on the asphalt, people who are really devout would be out there picking them up and putting them back into the, so they wouldn't get run over. Mm-hmm. And so you have some strict adherence or, you know, a little bit more concern than you have what you're describing, James, of it's really not a, a major factor in their worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. What was, so go on to the second one now. Okay, so the second of the five precepts is retain from taking what is not given. Um, So they're not going to go out and and ask for things. They're going to just wait until somebody um, is going to to bless them with that, Um, from my understanding of that one. Yeah, yeah, don't steal. But even beyond that. Yep. Because wasn't that, and that was kind of, wasn't that how uh, the original Buddha actually died was someone gave him a piece of uh, rotten meat or whatever. And he ate it and and since he was poisoned and, and killed that way. And it was, I think, someone go research that for me and tell me if I'm wrong. Again, like I've, I've gotten rid of desire, so I don't desire nice food. This is what was given to me. And so I'll I'll take it. What about the third one? It seems a little confusing. Yeah. So the, the third one is, is worded a little uh, differently. Refrain from the misuse of senses. Um, so this one is just going to be not... In- indulging in any of those sensual pleasures or things of that nature that can distract from kind of that 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 wholeness that they're kind of seeking after. And the fourth one um, is refrain from wrong speech. Um, so speak kindly, don't speak wrongly of people, things like that. Speak truthfully. And then the last one is refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. Um, so don't indulge in any of these things that give you pleasure. Refrain from that. That's probably another one that's sort of uh, diversity in how people apply it. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I was just thinking. I don't know that I met any of them followed that one. There's probably, I, I didn't ever know any monks very well. But beyond that, everybody I knew drank. So this is, just to restate it, I know we've said this at several points in this, um, in this series and even in this podcast. This is kind of the formal uh, teachings of Buddhism. But as we've already been alluding to, there's diversity in the Buddhist world. Some people may not even really, you know, they might not be able to, to give you, here's exactly what these things all are, but they they have some kind of practices and habits and uh, elements in their culture that maybe even connect to these things. Is that is that a pretty accurate statement? I think so. I think it would be even like in, in America, like we have a Judeo-Christian underpinning of our society. And so even some things that people who are like atheists or adamant against God, they still hold some of these cultural beliefs underneath it, even if they don't don't realize or acknowledge that that came from kind of that background. Mm-hmm. And so maybe just to bring it to, before we get into this next section, bring it down to what we're doing and preparing students, training students. Ashley, I know you'll have, I'm guessing here coming up in our trainings, you're going to have some 
role players that all have Buddhist background. How do you, how are they preparing or how does this all kind of come into play as they're trying to get ready to train students? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in regards to the role players and, and training students well, you know, Buddhism looks different everywhere you go. Um, there's no solid, this is <laughs> what it looks like. You know, it's going to look different in East Asia than it does South Asia, than it does in America. It, it, it just looks different. And so our role players, you know, they don't necessarily come in having memorized the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or the Five Precepts or things like that. But what we do want to do is have that basic understanding that these things do exist and they are underlying the religion. But most of the people that our students are going to come in contact with, you know, they're not going to be experts on this either um, because it's going to look different based on how they grew up, where they grew up, um, what their family believes and practices. And so we, you know, do come in with this variety of, you know, different levels and depths um, in the role playing. Um, but really, the the underlying goal is to not teach students to be experts or memorize this list of things, but it's really to teach them how to ask questions and to dig a little bit deeper and to really get that understanding of what are some of the underlying beliefs that my friends have? What are some things that have influenced what they believe about sin or truth or suffering? And then how can how can we teach them to share the gospel and to have really fruitful conversations with them, knowing that these underlying beliefs are there and have shaped what they believe, how they act, the decisions that they make, how they relate with their family. Um, but how can we have really awesome, deep, fruitful conversations with them that point them towards truth and towards Jesus? Yeah, that's really good. Well said. And I think that's a great place to end the conversation today. We will continue this conversation next week on the One Link Podcast. Join us then. Thank you.